Well, thank you for joining us today. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to continue through our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. Last week we looked at the temptation of Jesus. Uh, and with that we saw uh, that beautiful reminder that Jesus was faithful in all the ways that we've been unfaithful, right? Uh, Jesus was perfectly obedient uh, where we've been disobedient. And that's really good news for sinners because that's what we need is a Savior who, uh, who can actually rescue us from our sins. That's the reason that he could serve as a substitute is because he never sinned. Well, this week we're going to see the start of Jesus' ministry. Uh, and what we're going to see in this text is um, that he is rejected when he goes to his hometown. I've titled my sermon, The Rejection of Jesus. And as we look at this section of God's Word, we are all going to be confronted with this question. Will we accept Jesus on his terms? Will we accept Jesus on his terms? That's where we're headed as we work through this text. Now, I'm approaching the text a little bit different uh, than normal. Usually, as we work through a text, there are multiple points uh, that are brought out through that section of Scripture. But today, there's the, the focus of this set of uh, verses from Luke 4 has one point. And so, and that one point, which we will get to at the end, all kind of brings us to that question of will we accept Jesus on his terms? So that's where we're headed as we work through this. I do want to read uh, the verses, the scriptures for us. Luke 4, starting in verse 14, and we're going to go through to verse 30 today. Then Jesus returned to Galilee. And the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of, the, of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land. 
Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow in Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy. And yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Let's pray. Father, your word is good and true, and we need this for our lives. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will work as we consider the truth of your word today. I pray that you will confront us, um, all of us today, with uh, the reality of accepting Jesus on his terms. Help us see ways that we may not be doing that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, Jesus starts his ministry. Uh, He is in... Uh, you know, if, if you've been here the last few weeks, we saw that Jesus was baptized, uh, and at his baptism, the Father, so the, the Spirit of God descends on him, and the Father declares from heaven, you are my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. And then we see, last week we looked at uh, Jesus going out into the wilderness for a time of fasting and prayer and spending 40 days uh, in the wilderness and then being tempted by Satan. And Satan's approach was essentially, so if that's true, like if, if you're really God's son, then why don't you prove it? And he, he tempts him with all of these things. Uh, and of course, Jesus did prove it. Uh, but he didn't prove it by caving to the temptation. He proved it by being obedient to God in every way that God would have desired for him. He was the obedient son who would do only what the father wanted of him. And so that leads us to the text today, the start of his ministry. So let's look at verses 14 and 15 again of Luke 4. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues and being praised by everyone. So Galilee is the region that he grew up in. That's where his hometown is, which we'll see in just a little bit. But that's, so that's where he is most familiar, and that's the people that would have been most familiar with him. And so in verse 14, we see that his teaching ministry is empowered by the Spirit of God, right? The the Holy Spirit had descended on him at his baptism. The Spirit is what guided him into his temptation and through his temptations from Satan. And now his teaching ministry, his preaching, is being empowered by the Spirit of God, And that's important for us as believers to to consider the implications of that. Because as Christians, we too have the Spirit of God indwelling us. And yet, oftentimes in our life, we we just kind of think we've got to go about everything on on our own. 
And we should consider the reality that if we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit that Jesus depended on, that should be an implication that we too should depend on the Spirit. And church, if you want to know what to pray for your pastor, what you should pray for your elders, pray for this, that we would depend on God's Spirit. Right? We, we don't need a, a, a better idea or a newer way to think of things. We need the Spirit of God working in us and through us. So pray that for us. So we've got Jesus, the Son of God, fully dependent on the Holy Spirit to empower Him to teach. And people are amazed. People are blown away by what he is saying. The news at the end of verse 14, it's it's spreading. Uh, People are talking about it. People are saying, man, have you heard this guy? Have you heard the things that this guy is saying as he goes to the different synagogues? They're amazed by what he is teaching. It is different from what they have heard before. Uh, Now, what we're going to see as we continue on through this text is he's going to go into his hometown. uh, And as he goes into his hometown, we're going to see that he makes this claim to the people of his hometown. The, The people who knew him the most, the people that knew his family, he's going to declare to them who he is. And that declaration is that he's the promised Messiah. He's the one that they've been waiting for. Okay, so let's look at verses 16 through 21. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. So, he's in Nazareth, right? It says where he was brought up. These people knew him. They watched him grow up. Their kids played together in the streets. Jesus and and their kids played together together. They knew his parents. They knew Joseph and Mary. They knew Jesus' siblings. And it says he goes to the synagogue as was usual. Now the synagogue is, is essentially, it was the teaching, like the religious teaching center and common worship practices of the day were for Jews to gather on the Sabbath at the synagogue for a time of worship and, and teaching from God's Word. So essentially what we think of as coming to church, gathering together uh, as God's faithful. And it was, it was normal practice for Jesus to gather for the worship of God. 
And I, that should mean something for us, right? Sometimes we, we can easily think, well, I can, I can worship God anywhere. So as long as I go every, every once in a while, and as long as people know my allegiance, it's okay. Uh, the Son of God regularly recognize the value of gathering together for a time of worship. And Hebrews exhorts us in that. It says, don't neglect the gathering, of the, the gathering of the assembly. Don't neglect the gathering of the saints. So Jesus, as normal, goes to the synagogue for a time of worship. And then he takes the scroll... He's given the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. So in the worship practices on the Sabbath day, there would be a reading from God's law, from the Torah. There would be a reading from the uh, prophets, usually. And then a teacher would teach the people. It would help explain things and and walk through what God's instruction is from that. And so, more than likely, Jesus was asked ahead of time by the, the leader of the synagogue to prepare to teach this, you know, to read this message and to teach on this. And so he's given the message, or he's given the scroll from Isaiah, and he unrolls the scroll and reads this section about being led by the, by the Spirit of God being on him. And then he goes through and he talks about uh, a time of healing, a time of restoration, a time of freedom for the people. The passage that he's reading is from Isaiah 61. And the, it's verses 1 and 2 is the, the verses that, uh, he is, that are recorded here. And so from Isaiah, this is a messianic passage. It's a passage of saying, when the Messiah comes... When the promised one that we've been longing for comes, this is what it's going to be like. This is what's going to happen. Uh, and there's going to be a release of the captives. There's going to be uh, freedom for the people. There's going to be healing for the people. Sight for the blind. There's going to be all of this miraculous work. And it's going to be God's favor is going to be experienced in an amazing way. When the Messiah finally shows up, the last line that he recites from this text, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's a reference to the Old Testament year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was supposed to be every 50 years in the nation. Uh, the people were who had, had to sell themselves into uh, kind of like an indentured servant status, or sell themselves into like a slave status. They were set free. The people who were indebted to other people, the debts were canceled. Uh, land was restored to the families who had originally controlled the land. And God's favor would be on the nation in a miraculous way. And so Jesus reads this statement, and then we see in verse 20, he rolls up the scroll and sits down, which does not mean that he was finished uh, when a, what was the custom of the day was for the teacher to sit down when, when it was time to teach the lesson. So we, that's kind of opposite today when someone gets up in front of a crowd to speak. That's like, oh, he's getting started. When Jesus took his seat, it was 
to get ready to teach. This is what this means. And what does he say about it? Well, first off, we see the people are hanging on his words, right? Every eye is fixed on him. Every eye is looking at him like, what's he going to say about this? He's just talked about God's favor for the people. What's he got to say? And he says, today there's been a fulfillment of this promise. Like as you listen to these words, this promise from God has been fulfilled, which is him saying, I'm the promised one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been longing for. I'm here. God's favor is about to be experienced in a new and amazing way because I'm here. He's a fulfillment of that promise. There is going to be restoration for God's people. There's going to be healing and God's favor is going to rest on his people. And that's a tremendous claim. Uh, That's a tremendous claim with many implications. And so as we continue on, what we're going to see is they're amazed by that. But they doubt Uh, They they can't quite believe that that could be true. So let's continue on. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus is doubted in his hometown. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. The claim gets their attention, right? He's read this prophecy uh, about the promised Messiah coming and, and God's favor resting on the land and on the people. Uh, the claim gets their attention. They're amazed by everything. So this would have been how he, this says it's how he began. It's how he started. So he continued to teach them. This wasn't the only thing that he said here. He continued to teach them. And as he spoke, verse 22 says they were amazed at his gracious words. As they listened, man, That's amazing what he's talking about, what God is doing and what God is about to do. Isn't this amazing? But at the end of verse 22, something happens. As they listen to these words, as they listen to the promise of God's favor resting on his people, they have the problem that Jesus is just a little bit too familiar for them. Right? He's just, they they know Jesus. I know his family. And so they say, like, isn't this just Joseph's son? We like what we're hearing, but I don't know that we can actually buy it, right? That, that, that the guy that we grew up with, the guy that we know all of his brothers and sisters, and we know his mom and dad, and he's just a regular carpenter, Could a family of carpenters actually be the family that's going to bring about the promised one? The one that's going to 
bring in and restore the nation and and heal the nation and, and really help us experience the presence of God's favor, I don't... I don't think that that could be true. And so they have this doubt with this question of, I don't think he's really the Messiah. The promises he's talking about sound great, but I don't buy it. Because Jesus is just too familiar for them to think that maybe it could be true. And is it possible for us today that Jesus is... Sometimes just a little too familiar. A little too comfortable for us. We've, we've made him so comfortable, sometimes we forget the, the greater implications. So Jesus, in verse 23, calls him out. Uh, he says, look, I know what you want is me to prove it, right? Uh, I know that you really are hoping that I will... Uh, do something amazing. You've heard the stories of what happened in the towns down the road. You've heard about the healings. You've heard about the amazing things that have taken place. And you're going to say, hey, do that here. Why don't you prove it to us? Like you, We love what you're saying. It's, it sounds great, but if you're really the Messiah, do what you did in Capernaum. Do it here so we can see it. And then we'll believe. And so Jesus calls them out on this. He knows what their hearts are. And he says, look, you know, you're doubting. And you just want me to give you a sign. And, and that's, that's not how this is going to go. And so then he goes in to kind of rejecting them, for, or not rejecting them, he goes into kind of rebuking them because they will not accept his claim. He's told them who he is. They will not accept that. They will not believe that he's actually the Messiah. And so he rebukes them for that, and they're going to reject him. So as we continue on, verse 24 through 30, we're going to see Jesus is rejected, right? Uh, he rebukes their disbelief of his claim. Verse 24, he also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day, days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow in Zarephath. In Sidon, and in the prophet Elisha's time, there was many in Israel who had leprosy, yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. I'm going to stop there. We'll look at the, the last few verses in just a second. So Jesus says, look, you're doing what happens always. A prophet goes to his hometown and people don't believe. People just can't receive the message uh, and so he tells them that's what's happening here. And then he's going to quote some references to some Old Testament stories uh, as, a, as a form of a rebuke of their disbelief, essentially. So he tell, it's, you know, you remember Elijah? So Elijah, uh, when he is fleeing, uh, is, he f- finds a widow and the widow is baking her last meal for her and her son. 
She's fixing to prepare the last meal. There's a famine throughout the whole land. And she is, she's realized, this is it. I'm going to fix this meal and then we're to die because there is nothing left for us. And so Elijah tells her, prepare a meal for me. And trust God. God will not allow you to go without uh, during this time of famine. Just trust God in this and prepare a meal for me. And she doesn't say, well, I, I need a sign. I need you to prove that to me before I give you my last bit of food. She just accepts the message from him and she does it. And she prepares a meal and then God miraculously works throughout the rest of the famine. And her flour and her oil never run out. God miraculously restores that to care for this widow and her son over and over, day in and day out. Because she just accepted the message from the prophet. She just did what God wanted her to do. And Jesus quotes this and says, there were, there were widows in Israel. But the problem is, the nation of Israel at that time of Elijah, and at the time of Elisha, uh, was really at a spiritual low point. They were rejecting God over and over again. And Jesus, by quoting this story, is kind of tying these people to the nation of Israel at the time, where they're at a spiritual low point and they've been rejecting God. And he says, the prophet had to go to the outsiders to bless them. God's people missed out on the blessings because they wouldn't accept what God was doing. And then he tells another story about Elisha. Uh, and he references uh, that when Naaman, uh, another Gentile, another outsider, is healed from leprosy. And he said the same thing. There were people in, his, in Israel who had leprosy that needed healing. But the people of God rejected what God was doing and they missed out on the blessings of God. And so that rebuke to them is, guys, you're going to miss it. I'm telling you who I am. I'm telling you I'm the promised Messiah. I'm here to restore you. I'm here to heal you. I'm here to rescue you. And you're going to miss it. And the blessing's going to have to go to others because you're not willing to accept me on my terms. You're not willing to accept what I'm telling you about myself. Then we see their reaction. So they doubted initially, right? I don't know. Maybe if he proved it to us, but a rebuke from him, they're not going to have it, right? They're done with him. They don't finish the service. It's over. Verse 28. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. So it's, it's too much. The rebuke from him when they already were doubting that he could be the Messiah enrages them. 
and they want him dead. So they essentially do what, what their plans are to do what the requirement in the Old Testament for a false prophet, for someone who claimed to be speaking on the part of God but was not, was they had to be put to death. God's word said you, you must put them to death if they claim to speak on my behalf and they're not. And so they think that that's what they're doing. It's like, this guy can't be real. And so they drive him out of the, clown, out of the town and they're going to throw him over the cliff. They're going to kill him. But Jesus miraculously passes through the crowd and is missed in the chaos and goes about his way. I told you there was one main point from this text today, a a point that uh, we are all confronted with. And the main point is this. Jesus is to be accepted on his terms. Jesus is to be accepted on his terms, not our terms, not the not the terms that make us feel most comfortable. We've got to accept him for who he is who he claimed to be, who God's word declares him to be. And the question for us is, will we accept Jesus on his terms? Will we accept Jesus on his terms? Now, the reality is for every one of us sitting in this room, is we are all tempted to fit Jesus in a box, right? Try to fit Jesus in, in, a, in a box that makes us more comfortable with him. Uh, you know, I, I like these components of Jesus. These feel good, but I don't know if I can accept everything that he said. There, there are some, some things that make me a little bit uncomfortable. And so believers and unbelievers... Christians and people who are not Christians have a a tendency to try to not accept Jesus on the terms that are given to us. And we want to make him more comfortable for us. For non-believers, a lot of people will, uh, you know, they, they hear about who Jesus is. They hear about what Jesus claimed. They hear stories about Jesus doing all of these things. And they think, well, I... I think he was a good guy. Like, I think he was probably like a nice religious leader. Seems like he was probably like a good moral person, like a good role model to follow. But I don't know if I can believe everything about him being God's son, uh, him being, you know, a sacrifice for me. I don't know if I can accept all of that. C.S. Lewis has a quote some of you may have heard before, but... Uh, Lewis in Mere Christianity tries to address this argument from non-believers. People who say, like, I, I really like the teaching part of Jesus and the, and the role model of Jesus. I think, man, he's spot on, but I don't know if he's really God's son. I don't know if I can believe all of those things. And C.S. Lewis goes on to say this, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If you have never accepted Jesus as your Savior, if you have not ever truly accepted Jesus on His terms for for what God's Word declares about Him, that He is God's Son who came and lived a perfectly obedient life and then died for the punishment of your sins so that you could be saved... That's the invitation for you today, is would you accept Him? Would you believe Him? Because God's Word repeats to us over and over that that is what we are called to do. Now, I know we've looked at this a couple of times recently, but the verses fit with uh, what we see in the text today. Plus, I love these verses. Uh, John 1 Verses 11 and 12. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. He came to his own people. We saw that in a text. And they would not accept him, they would not accept Jesus on his terms. They liked the message, but they couldn't really believe that he is who he says. But God's word says, if you do believe, if you would just accept that this is who Jesus is, you will be saved from your sins. You will become a child of God, a son and daughter of the Most High. Just to believe in him, that will happen. And so... If you've never done that, we want you to know that that's the most important thing for you in your life. And I would love to get to talk with you more about what it means to believe in Jesus and talk to you more about what he did to uh, to die for your sins so that you could be saved. And so if you want to fill out one of the yellow cards on the back of the seat, you could say, I'd like to schedule a meeting with the pastor and I'd love to talk to you. You can meet with me. You could let me know on the way out today. I'd like to schedule a meeting and we'll get something set. But church, let's not think of this solely as a message for non-believers, because we're guilty of trying to fit Jesus in a more comfortable box for us too. Yeah, we, we may have accepted him for salvation, right? Salvation and forgiveness of sins, yes, please, and thank you very much. But wait a second, you, you didn't really mean that part about me taking up my cross, right? Um. I, I, I love the message of forgiveness, but do you really want me to put my sins to death? The, the things that I kind of really enjoy but don't hurt that many people, do you really want me to, to get rid of those as well? Church, we're tempted to try to squeeze Jesus into a box. We try to still remain Lord over part of our lives and say, well, let Jesus have these parts. And we're confronted with the question, too, will we accept Jesus on his terms? 
Because that's what's important for every single one of us today. The challenge for us all is to accept Jesus on his terms, to, to receive him for who he is, for what God, God's word says he is. So let's all quit trying to tame him. Let's all quit trying to put him into comfortable settings that we can hold and just accept him and let, the, let our lives be transformed because of him, because we're united with him, all for his glory. Let's pray. God, we, um, we love you, and we need you, and we thank you for your grace and mercy. And we do confess that there are times where we don't accept Jesus fully. Maybe with our mouths we do, but in our hearts we struggle. Um, we are tempted to dismiss certain things about him and about the way we should respond to him because he's just a little too familiar and we want to hold on to what we're comfortable with also. Forgive us for that and help us be amazed by Jesus. Help us truly believe what your word says about Jesus and then through the power of your spirit transform us to look more and more like Jesus and to live a life that honors him. And God, I do pray if there's anyone here who is not trusted in him, I pray, Holy Spirit, you will work on their hearts to realize the need for Jesus in their lives. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.